You have not converted people because you have silenced them. This is what John Morley once said. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christian Questions, talk radio with a purpose with Jonathan and Rick. The objective of our program is to discuss with you, our listeners, thought-provoking and meaningful topics based on the Bible. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly, and we certainly look forward to hearing your point of view. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, our perspective is this. We believe that there is one God, and through him there is one truth which is found in the Bible. Our purpose? To stir your thinking up along with ours as we continually search for clarity and understanding this one truth. While we are not here to teach, we are here to seriously provoke your thinking according to Hebrews 10.24, which is the theme for our program. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. This provoking is encouraged by Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, and we look to frame our comments in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5.19 and 21. Quench not the spirit, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. The only end result we seek to accomplish, to bring praise, honor, and glory to God our Father, and Jesus our Lord. And folks, if you'd like to contact us or suggest a topic for a future program and want a Christian Questions travel mug, here's what you do. You write us at Christian Questions, P.O. Box 1837, New London, Connecticut, 06320, or check us out on the web at www.christianquestions.net. And if you do have a Christian question or want to reopen a previously aired topic, give us a call, let us know, and we'll see what we can do. So on behalf of Jonathan, my busy co-host... Good morning, Rick. There he is. And, and Vicki, the gal behind the board. Good morning. Who's very busy. <laughs> we want to welcome you to this hour of our program. And uh, Jonathan, we're uh, in one of those situations where Sean is not here this morning. And as a result of that, things are not quite the way they normally are at the beginning of a program. But we're here, we're on, and we're going. Okay. So, Jonathan, where have we been? All right. Well, last week we talked about, does God commend dishonesty? And we were talking last week about the parable of the unjust steward. And in that parable, it's a very difficult parable to understand. It's a parable that Jesus tells in the context of a number of other parables. And he's really pointing his, his lesson, while he's talking to his disciples, he's pointing his lesson at the Pharisees who are also sitting there listening and really saying, you guys have not done your job well, and just as the steward uh, in the story got fired, you guys are about to get fired from the position of being the conduit through which God's word is given to the average person. So it was a very uh, interesting lesson talking about stewardship uh, last week in the program. And uh, one of the things that we talked about was being stewards of the little things, um, being uh, faithful in the little things so that God would make us faithful in the bigger things. So, interesting program, and, and Jonathan, I know that you're real busy, but I've got this, this little punchline I've been rehearsing all morning, all okay. the way over here, all right. about last week and being stewards okay. in the little things. I think they, they made a movie about that. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I gotcha. Steward Little. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that once you started it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> You don't want to be inside my head. It's a bad place to be. <laughs> anyway, this morning, Jonathan, today is Palm Sunday. That's right. And our question and uh, subject this morning says, uh, Why didn't Jesus save the crowd? And our theme text is found in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others 
cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Today, as we mentioned, is Palm Sunday, the day traditional Christianity celebrates Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. At that moment, when Jesus rode into the city, the crowd and the momentum had shifted to Jesus, and he held the masses in the palm of his hand. So, why didn't Jesus take advantage of the circumstances? Why didn't he firmly establish himself as a force to be reckoned with? This morning, we'll see why Jesus did what he did and didn't do what he didn't do. We'll get a good look into who he was and what he was about. And our program this morning is designed largely, Jonathan, to be a kind of sit back and reflect sort of a program because as we come upon next week, next week, which is uh, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we like to, to really just kind of sit back and honor him and his life and, and what his sacrifice really meant. And so this is sort of a, an introduction to that. Um, so, what are our questions this morning? All right, our first question, what really happened on the original Palm Sunday? And the second question, why did the original Palm Sunday happen that way? So, in our, our uh, establishing what really happened on the original Palm Sunday, it may be a little bit different than a lot of us might think. And let's first begin by looking at the context of our Matthew 21 scripture. And to get the context, sometimes you have to go to the other Gospels. Ah, good Because you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm-hmm. uh, all written from different perspectives on Jesus' life. And in this case, we need to go to John uh, to find out what happened the day before Palm Sunday. And I'm going to use that phrase loosely. It certainly wasn't called Palm Sunday back then. Uh, but it's just a way to identify the day. All right, why don't we look at John 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You also have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So in this context, very interesting event. Jesus uh, is at the home of Lazarus, and Scripture starts out saying he's at the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Right. Now, this raising Lazarus from the dead had happened, I think, within a week or two before this. That's right. So this is fresh in everybody's mind. Yes. And this this was a, this, we'll find out soon, this was a very, very big deal, this, this, this last miracle of Jesus, it wasn't his last miracle, but uh, this, this most notable miracle of Jesus, raising somebody from the dead who had been in the tomb for days already. Right. I mean, he, we're talking raising them from the dead. There's no question on this one. That's right. And so Jesus is at their home, and Martha is serving, and Mary, uh, uh, she anoints Jesus' feet. I mean, it's, it is a wonderful uh, example of honoring 
Jesus. And, of course, Judas complains. Right. And he's complaining about it, saying, well, that money should have been, you know, used for the poor. Now, Judas really wasn't concerned about the poor. He was a little bit greedy, but we're not going to go there this morning. We don't need to. But the, the point is, Jesus puts it in perspective. He says, leave her alone. She is preparing me for my burial. And that was, that's the context that we want to begin our look at the events of the, the, the following day with that particular uh, circumstance. And, and Jonathan, I understand we have a, 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 a song. song. Mm-hmm. She Hath Done What She Could by Estelle and... Estelle Gill? Mm-hmm. And Anna Ricciarello. Okay.
she hath done what she could. And what a what a beautiful rendition. <laughs> yeah, it's off now, Vic. <laughs> what a beautiful rendition of the the sacrifice uh, that Mary made on behalf of Jesus. And this is the beginning of the context of our looking at uh, Palm Sunday and what it really means and the events that led up to it. And it's very fascinating as we look at this. And obviously, we will be looking this at this more in a minute. This is Jonathan and Rick with Christian Questions on 980 WSUB. Grab your Bibles. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Christian Questions on 980 WSUB with Jonathan and Rick. Our subject this segment, Why Did Jesus Save the Crowd? To be a part of our program, call 443-9782-443-WSUB. Actually, Jonathan, it's why didn't Jesus ah, save the crowd. You. A little minor detail. <laughs> changes the whole outcome of the story, but just a minor detail. And uh, we are looking to set the context for the happenings on uh, Palm Sunday, uh, the original Palm Sunday, which wasn't called Palm Sunday at all. And uh, so the, the first bit of context we put in place was the anointing of Jesus uh, by Mary six days before the Passover. Uh, he's at the home of Lazarus. And uh, la- this, is, this is within weeks of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, so it's very, very, very significant happenings here. The next set of scriptures, Jonathan, continues our context. And that's in John 12, verses 9 through 13. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So in John, it doesn't go into as much detail on the actual riding into Jerusalem, but it gives some important context before that. And it talks about uh, Lazarus being a tremendous spectacle for everybody. Because here's this guy who had died, was sent, was died and buried, and Jesus brings him back. And so you've got this, and it's interesting. It says, now, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were already mad at Jesus. Right. And they were looking to put him to death. But now they're mad at Lazarus because of that. Because he's evidence. Right. I mean, hey, look, guys, I was dead, but now I'm alive. What can I tell you? The guy did it. Yeah. And, and when you have that kind of an incredible miracle, you can't, it, they had to get rid of that. They were looking to get rid of that. So word traveled dramatically through the multitudes that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And that and that's the, the, the context of of uh, what we look at as, as Palm Sunday today. Let's take a look at the context now of him going into Jerusalem and the events that happened around that. And we're going to read Matthew twenty one verses one through seventeen. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophets, saying, 
Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them. And he sat on them, and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children cry out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He then left, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. So it's interesting. Jesus rides in, hangs out for the day, and then leaves. Right. And 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 he he, he rides into the. And it's interesting. First, there's a lot of a lot of great things in this set of scriptures. First of all, in the first in verses two to four, and, and folks are in Matthew chapter twenty-one, verses two to four. Um, this is actually fulfilling a prophecy, and it says what the prophecy is. And it's actually taken from Zechariah 9, 9. That's the scripture, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, this Old Testament prophecy said, Your king would come to you humbly riding into the city on this donkey. And Jesus knows that's the way it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. So he gets the donkey and rides in. Right. Now see, it's interesting. Jesus could control that part, but he couldn't control the crowds. There you go. So you, know, you can say, well, you know, he he just was making it look good. Well, maybe he was, but when you look at it, you had multitudes of people that were were, were following him and adoring him and proclaiming him as their savior. So, very, very interesting. Rick, another point in this verse is, verses 8 and 9, the crowd was unified behind Jesus, the son of David. And that's the way they, they labeled him. Oh, son of David. And, right. of course, that was a, a tremendous, tremendous... First of all, it was true. But the scribes and Pharisees didn't like it. <laughs> Absolutely not, because it was taking their authority away and, and, and shifting it to Jesus. Right. In verse 11, they recognized Jesus as a prophet. Mm-hmm. So, so not only are they saying, okay, he's got the, the right lineage, he's the son, uh, a son of David, but now they're saying he's a prophet as well. Mm-hmm. And in verses 12 to 14, Jesus clears the temple and heals in plain sight of everyone. So when Jesus rides into the city, he doesn't just sort of ride in and sign autographs. No. <laughs> I mean, that's what we would do in our day and age. You know, we'd be all caught up in the... In the, in the in, the American Idol sort of image, mm-hmm. like I'm mm-hmm. here. Right. He comes into the city and he does something very, very important. He goes into the uh, into the temple and he clears out the money changers because they're cheating the people. And he says, frankly, you know, you don't belong in here. 
acting that way, get and out of here. You don't do this in my father's house. That's right. This is a house of prayer. Get out of here. Right. And then after he does that, he heals people. Right. So it's not like he's there to just absorb all of this 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 adoration. He's there to do a job. And it's it's just it's it's fascinating to see his reaction to all of these things that 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 that's, that are going on. And in verse 15, this is interesting. The chief priests challenged the crowd's assessment of Jesus to Jesus. Right. They're saying, you know, <laughs> Do you hear that? Yeah, do you hear what they're saying about you? <laughs> and Jesus is saying, "Yeah. I heard it." And he says as a matter of fact, he quotes them another prophecy. Yes. And that's from Psalms 8:2. Mhm. And that's out of the mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. So Jesus is saying that these people, in your eyes, even though they are, are, are children, they are, they are sort of like last week, Jonathan, remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they had treated the common folk as people that were just so far away from the law, they sort of looked down upon them. Yes, that's right. And he's taking that and saying, look, they've got it right. There's the simple people, but look how smart they are. Look at, and you know what? It didn't take a lot of smarts to look at what was going on. The fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that uh, he was able to heal people, that he proclaimed himself to be who he was. So, And he gave uh, the scribes and Pharisees a parable before that, and it was about Lazarus. Dipping right. his finger, remember right, that? Right, 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 and he mentions the name exactly. Lazarus. Exactly, before and then, the healing. Right, right, and then just, just a week or two later, he heals or, or raises Lazarus from the That's dead, right. and, and just shortly after that, here he's riding into the city. So Jesus has got the momentum on his side. Interesting, though, one of the things that the crowd keeps saying to Jesus, they're, they're, they're proclaiming him as a prophet, they're saying he's our guy, he's, from, he's, he's uh, of the lineage of David, but they keep saying this word, Hosanna. right. What does this word, Hosanna, mean? Well, in the Strong's Concordance, it's Strong's number 5614, and it means an exclamation of adoration. Okay, and it also means, oh, save. Oh, save. Now, well, what does that mean? I mean, oh, oh save. Well, it's interesting that this, this, this particular Greek word comes directly from two Hebrew words. Okay, and these Hebrew words are, are Hebrew word number 3467 and number 4994. Now, folks, that probably means absolutely nothing to you at all. But what we want to do is we want to look at every single time those two Hebrew words are used in the Old Testament because that defines what this word Hosanna means. Why don't we read Second Kings 19, verse 19. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. And Rick, the word save thou us is the same word for Hosanna. Right. So it's the now at the beginning of the scripture and the save thou us. Okay. So it is a, it is a, it is a plea, save us now. Gotcha. And in Psalms 118.25, it says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And the word save now is the same word for Hosanna. And then it's used one other time. And that's in Isaiah 47, verse 13. Thou art w- wearied in the multitude of thy counsel. Let now the astrologers, the string stargazers, the monthly, and that one I need help with. <laughs> Prognosticators. Exactly. <laughs> 
stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. So now save thee again is the word for Hosanna. So this this is a, a form of, of of adoration. That's what it says in terms of the uh, uh, of the Greek word. But it comes from these two Hebrew words, which literally mean "save us now." Now that's interesting because coming from a background in singing in church choirs growing up, because my dad was a choir director, mm-hmm. every time I sang "Hosanna in the highest" in, in hymns, I always thought it just meant "praise the Lord" kind right, of thing. Right. But this is very different. Uh, it's true understanding. It's something totally different than what I thought it really meant. Right, and it's it's much deeper than it. I mean, it still has that sense of adoration, right, and praise. And this but, th- this word is used in the context of this adoration and praise by this huge multitude. Because see, understand, this multitude did not come from Jerusalem. Right. Because it said in one of the earlier scriptures, I don't know if I can find it now, uh, it says in, in the John 12 scripture, verse 12, it says, The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So these are people that were not natives of Jerusalem themselves. They're they had, from all over. Right. They had gathered from, from the towns and cities and areas around. So you have this huge multitude that are getting behind Jesus before he's entering into the city even. So they're not coming from within the city Some were ahead of him, some were behind him. It's right. like this train of people going to Jerusalem. So, and the thing, what they're saying to Jesus is, again, they're saying three specific things. He's a prophet, he's the son of David, and they're pleading with him, save us now. Now, obviously, they weren't meaning, they, they weren't talking about eternal salvation because that wasn't what was on their minds. It was being saved and released from, from bondage. From bondage, from oppression. That's right, from the Romans. Right. So that's what they're looking for. And they are expecting, because they see Jesus as this miracle worker, the Son of God, they see him as being able to do that. So get the sense of how dramatic a scene this would have been. They, they see him coming into the city. He's riding it. He's publicly entering the city. And they are looking to him for their, their deliverance. Interesting parallel. Just last week, what happened out over in, in Baghdad? American tanks publicly in broad daylight drove down the, the, the streets of Baghdad to proclaim liberty to its inhabitants. That's right. And, it and how were they received for they, the most part? They were received with open arms. Yes. Once with, the people figured out. Shouting and joy. Right, yeah. right. I don't know if there was any Hosanna going on because it would have been the wrong language, especially in Iraq. <laughs> but, but once the people figured out that that they didn't have to worry about being persecuted and tortured and killed for speaking out, the the, the flood of emotion came out, and we saw actual pictures of that. I mean, it's interesting because the timing is, is, is fascinating because we saw the pictures of the people pulling down the statues and, the, and right. the dancing and the singing in the streets. And the rams sacking the, um, the, the government buildings right. well, yeah, that, that he ran. That, that's the, the, the other side of the issue yeah. there. But what we saw was a people grabbing hold of liberty. Right. That's what the people in Jerusalem were looking for, is they were looking for that liberty. Jesus didn't give it to them. Why? Now that's a good question. Now the answer let's let's answer that question because I, I don't like to leave that kind of question just unanswered. It just wasn't time yet. He did give them the liberty. They just didn't yet receive it. 
Oh, okay. Just and we'll get into that scripturally in a, in a few minutes. But I hate leaving that out. On yeah, <laughs> I don't like saying that he didn't give it to them. Oh, yes, he did. It's just the timing was not complete for that liberty to become obvious. Gotcha. Uh, so that's the, that's the context. That's what this Palm Sunday was about. Was Jesus triumphantly riding into the city, being being accepted by this huge multitude of people as their savior, as a prophet, as a king, as a son of David. All of these things are happening, and um, Jesus goes about his business. And one of the things he does, he goes and he, and he clears out the temple uh, of the money changers. He goes and he heals people. He's doing what he set out to do. Right. Well, that leads us to our second question. Why did the original Palm Sunday happen that way? All right. So why didn't Jesus... Grab the moment. I mean, think about it. You've got all of these people behind you. You've got the momentum of the of the moment. You've got everybody's cheering for you. You ought to just take a stand right there. But he didn't do that. So we're going to ask, you know, why? Why Why is that? Well, let's take a look at one of the things that, that the... Um, the uh, the people called Jesus was their deliverer, obviously. Right. Save right. us now. Mm-hmm. So... Let's take a look at some of the parallels between Jesus as the deliverer and the Passover lamb that delivered the children of Israel from bondage hundreds of years or thousands of years before that. Why don't we read Exodus 12, verses 5 through 11. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roasted with fire, his head with his legs, and the pure tents thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So you have a scripture here, Jonathan, comes back from Exodus, way back in history. And this is about the deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And Vic, actually, why don't we go to a break before we try to get into anything further. And what we're looking at here is this lamb of the Passover and the parallels to Jesus. This is Jonathan and Rick with Christian Questions on 980 WSUB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Christian Questions on 980 WSUV with Jonathan and Rick. Our subject this day, Why Didn't Jesus Save the Crowd? To be a part of our program, call 443-972-443-WSUV. Our subject this day? I never heard this you day. Say, I never heard you say that. I'm before. sorry for throwing you off. <laughs> our subject this day. Why didn't Jesus save the crowd? Well, he did, but they didn't know it. I imagine they would have been disappointed a little bit there. That's and, right. Um, we we just read before the break, Jonathan. We just read a scripture that talked about uh, this lamb 
that was to deliver it was the blood of this land that delivered the uh, the Israelites from the captivity in Egypt yes right um, before we we've got a call before we take the call let's just read this one scripture in first Peter because it, it it finishes the picture and I think we need to do that for as much as ye know that ye have not redeemed with corruption things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, obviously, in this scripture, Jesus is being paralleled with that Passover lamb. It's not something we're making up. It's not something we're saying, hey, this sounds good. That's right. This is a scriptural perspective that we will expand. But I yeah. And also that God's plan... Uh, had this in mind before the foundation of the world, right? Knowing that this needed to be done, right? Okay, and now we do have a call. Welcome now to Christian Questions. This is Jonathan and Rick. Who are we speaking with? Gentlemen, good morning. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Good morning, good morning, Julius. <laughs> How is everyone? Good. What a timely topic. Uh, you know, the the aspect of uh, God taking His time to do things. Uh, this April thirteenth. Two thousand and three. Look at Iraq; those people are liberated. And look at the chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, it, it parallels. I think how that God, the way God is going to do it when He uh, uh, liberates the world from sin and death, that He will do it in an orderly fashion, and uh, He'll succeed. And uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Iraq here. Eventually, things are going to settle down and get organized. But I think it's an interesting parallel and timely where you're saying, well, uh, why didn't Jesus save the crowd? Well, uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I recall one scripture you folks use a lot. I think it's 1 Timothy 2, 4 to 6, where it says, uh, he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Right. That's that's the key. I think you already mentioned that, the due time aspect, and uh, uh, the uh, scripture that's also uh, quite relevant at the moment in answering your question is uh, John the fifth chapter, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Remember, uh, I'll just paraphrase it. Where uh, Jesus had performed some wonderful miracles. And, uh, he, of course, the people, you know, they were awed, and they, ex- they expected a lot from him. No, nobody ever did what he did. Uh, he aroused the curiosity of the, uh, of the leaders of his day, uh, like uh, even Herod, the one that uh, had John the Baptist's uh, head cut off. He was uh, interested in, uh, he, he asked Jesus, says, why don't you... Uh, uh, do some miracles for me, and Jesus did not answer him. So uh, uh, the time, the timing is the, the, the issue. Uh, Jesus' purpose at his time was to give himself in sacrifice, a ransom for all people, to be testified in due time. And one final scripture uh, in John five twenty eight twenty nine, as we said, uh, where when they marvel at his miracles, says, "Don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves shall hear my voice and come forth." So uh, it's it's the issue is one of time. In the meantime, uh, uh, 
a church is being selected uh, to bless all the families of the earth. Basically, that's the way I see it anyway. Well, thank you so much for sharing. We thank appreciate you. your input. God bless. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Interesting, Jonathan, because uh, Julius is essentially saying, well, Jesus is doing th- all things in his time. And as we look at this this concept, this idea of God's timing, if we look again, go back to that picture of the original Passover back in Egypt, way back, thousands of years before, we're going to see that idea brought out if we if we examine it. And I think we need to do that because the question is why didn't uh, you know Jesus? Why, why didn't he save the crowd right then? Well, let's take a look at the process of the original Passover. First of all, before we get into that process, one more scripture that gives us the authority to go back and and look at Jesus in light of this Passover. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it says it very plainly there. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Us, that's right. So it does tie in it, and, and perfectly. It's, 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 it's not something that can be mistaken. It's, it's, no. just, it's, a, it's a clarity of, of uh, parallel here. So we've got we've to look at that and see exactly, well, so what does it mean, this, uh, this, this tie-in? Well, first of all, um, we're, we're taking a look at the parallels between the, uh, that, that original Passover and Jesus as the Passover, our Passover. And there's a scripture in Isaiah that, that gives a description of the deliverance of Jesus. Let, let's go through that quickly. Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 9. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on them the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By the provision of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined this, his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. What a perfect description of Jesus and his sacrifice. And it said at the beginning of that scripture, all we like sheep have gone astray. Mm-hmm. So we have all gone the wrong way, and Jesus' sacrifice was to bring everybody back into into harmony with God. Right. Not right away, but eventually. Now, the scriptures, the Bible talks about two different parts to salvation. All right, and just read this first John scripture to, to verify that. All right, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So there you have it. He is the, 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 the propitiation for our sins and also for the sins of the world. Right. So it's for those on the inner circle? No, it's for everyone. 
but it does separate those in the inner oh, circle. True. But it's, it's for everyone. One then all. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's for everyone. Yes. But it specifies two different groups. Oh, true. Now, see, that's why am I making such a big deal out of that? Because I know you like the all part. Oh yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> word in the Bible. And I, and I think the reason for that is to realize if you go back to the original Passover, let's look at what happened. Let's look at that Exodus scripture. Exodus 12, verses 22 to 23. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door of his house unto the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lentil and on the side post doors of the door, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Now, who was liable to die in this Passover with this, with the blood and, and that night? Was it everybody? The firstborn. Just the firstborn. Right. Now, that's interesting. So God said that it was actually by the words of, of Pharaoh himself. But God put this, this, this last plague in place where the destroyer would come and take the firstborn of every family. And the the only way to avoid that was to have the Passover lamb, literally having been killed that night before, and having the blood from that lamb on the doorposts of your house. Mm-hmm. That was going to protect you. It had to be the blood of a lamb, a specific type of a lamb. Jesus is talked about as being our Passover. Right. It's interesting. Now, who was delivered from slavery? All the Egyptians were... All of the Israel, you mean. Right. Oh, that's right. All of Israel was... <laughs> All of Israel was delivered. They were the slaves. But yeah. who was delivered from death that particular night? The firstborn. So, in the delivery of everybody, the way it happened was through the delivery of just the firstborn. Mm-hmm. So, there was two parts of their salvation. Yes, that makes now, sense. Now, read this scripture in, in, in Hebrews. In Hebrews twelve twenty three. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So it calls those who are following Jesus the church of everybody. The firstborn. firstborn. Chur- the church of the firstborn. Which are written in heaven. So you have another parallel to this Passover picture, to what happened back in, 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 in the ancient history of, of, of Israel as a nation, and you see that they were delivered, and then because of their being delivered, the rest of the nation was delivered. That's the way the plan of salvation works. That's why now when you go back to that First John scripture that you read before, he's the propitiation for our sins, mm-hmm. and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Good point. So when you say, okay, why didn't Jesus uh, deliver the people? Why didn't he save the crowd? Because there's two parts of salvation. And it was guess, just getting underway. The whole right. process, the whole plan was just getting underway. Right. So we're in the night of sin, and there will be a morning, just as though when the Egyptians um, lost their firstborn, it was the night. And that's the time period that we're in now, and it wasn't until later that they that all of Israel left Egypt 
um, and we have not gotten to that point yet. Right. So if you if you look at that 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 original story and get into more detail, this was happening during the nighttime, literally, physically during the nighttime, and who was being delivered during the nighttime? Was it all of Israel? The firstborn. It was just the firstborn because they were the ones who would were subject to dying. They were the ones who were essentially being judged, if you will, mm-hmm. by having the blood applied to their doorposts, symbolizing the 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 the, uh, the doorposts of their lives. So that's a good picture of being judged in advance of the world, right? Just as true Christians following after Jesus are judged in advance of the world. Now the world is going to get its day of judgment, day right. of crisis, if you will, but. Yes. There's a process. So the deliverance happens through the night, and then because of that night of deliverance, then the rest of the nation of Israel was delivered the next day. And they and that's why they they ate the meal, and you know they 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 were ready to to make haste and make and they were ready to leave, because it was now time for them to go. So. As we look at this 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 uh, this story and this riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and today is Palm Sunday, and traditional Christianity takes this day and 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 honors it, and 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 there, there's there's good reason for that because you have Jesus riding into the city triumphantly, the people, the crowds, the, the throngs of people around him are 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 looking to him, they're recognizing him as a prophet, they're recognizing him as the son of David and they're and they're and, and as a deliverer because they're saying hosanna to the son of David. Now hosanna isn't just saying hey you're the man. Hosanna is saying save us now. They saw him as their ticket out from under the thumb of the of the oppression that they were living under. Jesus saved them but not at that moment he was on a much larger mission not only to save them from that oppression but to save the entire world from the oppression of sin and death and in the second hour we're going to take a closer look at the life of jesus as we get into the spirit of the season of jesus resurrection for jonathan and rick this is christian questions why didn't jesus save the crowd well he did just not then stay with us and think about it between towering and cowering is totally a matter of inner posture. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Christian Questions Talk Radio with your breakfast with Jonathan and Rick. The objective of our program is to discuss with you, our listeners, thought-provoking and meaningful topics based on the Bible. This is a call-in format, and we are caller-friendly, and we look forward to hearing your point of view. If you do have a thought, give us a call at 443 443-WSUB. Jonathan, what's the question? 
The question is, why didn't Jesus save the crowd? And What's our, the answer? Our theme text oh, okay, is not found yet. in Matthew 21, it verses 8 so through well. 9. <laughs> A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So we have the context of Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. This must have been an amazing scene. There must Definitely. have been, I don't know, how many people surrounding him and shouting. and Shouting, save us now. Save us because now. Because that's what we learned Hosanna means. Right. And they were, they were, they were, sh- this was a shout of adoration. It was also a plea. Uh, they were, they were uh, acknowledging him as their rightful king, if you will. Their Messiah. That's right. They were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean this is a this is this is a moment of jubilation. And we, we we've seen recently in the last few days those kinds of moments of jubilation in in the process of the liberation of the people of Iraq. We've seen that same kind of That's right. that that joyous uh, exuberance saying, We're free, we're free, we're free. The people in and around Jerusalem at that point were looking to be freed as well from their oppression. The thing is, Jesus didn't free them. As a matter of fact, what he did is he went into the, into the temple, he cleared the temple from the money changers, uh, he went and he healed some people, and that night he left the city. And he stayed overnight in Bethpage. I mean, he said, okay, I'm here, I'm gone. And, and it, in a sense, it almost would have looked like a great disappointment. Like, here he is, we're giving him all of the momentum and you know, here's our king, and, 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 and yet there, there is no salvation apparently. And in the first hour we talked about that. We talked about how the plan of salvation has different parts to it. And we are doing a parallel between the, the Jewish Passover, which mm-hmm. was their deliverance from Egypt, right. and Jesus as the lamb of the Passover. And those, those comparisons are scriptural comparisons that... Um, are easy for us to make because the scriptures make them for us. Sure. And Jonathan, let's just one more scripture on this this deliverance and this two part salvation thing. And let's read First Timothy two verses four through six. Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So it talks about Jesus being the ransom for all. And, and this is a scripture that Julius uh, quoted earlier. Quoted. Yes. That's right. And the key thing in this scripture is that this ransom for all will be testified in due time. Mm-hmm. Not immediately. Right. You're not going to see all of its results happening overnight. And, and that's what we're seeing in, in Iraq. What we see is you see the deliverance of those people and there's an immediate, the, the, the old regime is gone and now they have to do some rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Well, here Jesus came... Jesus lived, Jesus sacrificed his life, Jesus died, and the old regime is still here. So we have this, um, this circumstance happening, and it's just taking a lot longer than what we're seeing in this little microcosm of, of, of deliverance in, in the deliverance of Iraq. But right now, Jonathan, because Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to deliver Jerusalem and essentially all man, we want to play a hymn Jerusalem. That's right, the Be- holy city. Because it fits, and not only does it, it fit in terms of 
the deliverance of Jerusalem as being this holy city, but it also fits in terms of the message of the hymn is not only that Jerusalem becomes this holy city, but it gives the message of the deliverance of all men by the sacrifice of Jesus.
Jerusalem. And it's interesting because, uh, again, the, the comparison is the, the people in Jerusalem or at Jerusalem at that time were looking for immediate salvation. And in that hymn, it talked about the salvation that will never pass away, the holy city that will never pass away. And, and what a, that's why Jesus didn't do it then, because it just wasn't time for that salvation to take place. And, and Jonathan, what that does is that, that brings us to a, a different segment of, of our program We've talked about the the idea of um, Palm Sunday and what it meant and the symbolic riding into the city and Jesus uh, essentially taking hold of uh, his kingship, if you will. And what we need to do as we prepare ourselves for the uh, the, the the coming celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. I think it would be appropriate if we take a look at the life of Jesus and take a look at just how he lived and what he did and just highlight a few of the, 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 the portions of his life that, that kind of put things into a perspective. And let's be, before we do that, let's just read quickly the first prophecy of, the, of, of Jesus in the Bible because it comes very early on. And that's found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be, be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat it. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Now you say, okay, so what does that say about Jesus? Where is Jesus in that? If this yeah. is the first prophecy, where <laughs> is he? Well, right at the end, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, now that the God is talking to Satan. Right. Okay? And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It, the seed of the woman, will bruise the serpent Satan's head. Which kills a serpent. Right. Mm -hmm. And thou shalt bruise his heel. What is happening is right at the scene of the very first sin, you have the promise of redemption. Right. Satan sa saying Satan will get his. Mm -hmm. Just wait. Now it's going to take some time, but Satan will get his. And it's, and it's kind of encrypted in there, but you have a clear picture of Jesus overcoming the evil of sin that has come to our world through Satan. So this is the story of Jesus. That's what the story of Jesus is all about, and that's why we want to open up our telling the story of Jesus with the hymn that says just that. I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Turn. 
Jonathan and Rick with Christian Questions on 980 WSUB. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Christian Questions on 980 WSUB with Jonathan and Rick. You're doing fine now. (laughs) Our subject of the segment, Why Didn't Jesus Save the Crowd? (laughs) To be part of the program, call 443-9782-443-WSUB. Or sing along with Tennessee Ernie Ford there. <laughs> That's right. Love I love to, to tell, tell the story. story. That's that right. <laughs> You're doing just great. Okay. So if you want to sing along, just join right in. Uh, we're telling the story. We are telling the story. We, we talked about Palm Sunday, the first part of the program, and really the significance of Jesus being victorious in symbol on that day and the uh, the victory that has yet to be seen uh, in in his life and what we want to do for the rest of the program is just simply sort of kick back and read through some parts of Jesus life and just reflect on what it is that he did and Jonathan let's just start right at the beginning let's start with his birth Luke 2 verses 4 through 14 and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. 
And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. There it is, the birth of Jesus, the, the very, very humble, humble beginning. Uh, born in stable, no place to go. And it's the humble beginning has this mixture of humility and grandeur because then you have the angels and this chorus, uh, this heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. It's talking about the beginning of an amazing event that is about to take place over the next 33 and a half years, and that is the earthly life of Jesus, which would be to fulfill his mission as the ransom for all. Jonathan, his birth uh, did not go unnoticed. That's right. And uh, the next scripture is just when he was just days old, um, a, a, an event that clearly put in perspective what his life was going to be all about. Let's read Luke 2, verses 25 through 33. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now Jesus is eight days old here. He's being taken to uh, be circumcised. And this old, old man, Simeon, who's a, uh, a prophet, uh, a, a very just, upright individual, was in the temple and it had been revealed to him that he would see the Messiah before he died. Now, he sees the Messiah just at eight days old. You know how small and helpless an eight-day-old child is. Mm. I mean, brand new to the world. And can you just imagine the old, old man, Simeon, taking this little, tiny, tiny baby in his arms and proclaiming out loud, here it is. Here is the salvation of the world. Here is a light to lighten the Gentiles. Here's the glory of Israel, this eight-day-old baby. Simeon's life is so fulfilled at this point that he look, says, says to God, you can take me now because I have lived, I have seen your salvation, and that's, that's enough for me. Mm. Eight days old. Wow. That's the destiny of Jesus laid out very, very clearly and very early on. Well, to continue the old, old story, Jesus at age 12 was very spiritually minded. Let's read Luke 2, verses 43 through 52. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, that 
child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolks and acquaintances. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So here he is, a 12-year-old boy. And uh, your son is 12, isn't he? No, he's 13. Oh, he just turned 13 recently. And that age. Yeah. And you have this young, young man sitting in the temple talking with the doctors of the law, reasoning with them, asking them questions, absolutely attentive to these things, to the point where days go by. You think about that. And Mm. his parents can't find him. And when they find him, now, if you're his mother, you'd be a little upset. You know, son, where have you been? Can you imagine your wife if your son was missing for days? But (laughs) even beyond that, Mary and Joseph were to watch over God's son, Jesus, because of all the prophecies and what they were told by angels. And how do you think they felt? Oh, no. Boy, did we mess this one up. (laughs) We're in trouble. Especially when you think that they had to flee because he was going to be killed once before. They could very well have thought, oh, dear. Oh, yeah. You could easily think the worst. And Jesus' attitude is, well, What's wrong? Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Didn't didn't you know this is where I'd be? I mean, you know me by now. I mean, he's only twelve years old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know me by now. This is this is what I'm about. This is what my life is 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 is, is producing. And the interesting thing is that uh, it, it says that as Jesus grew, he first of all he was subject. He was obedient to his parents. Right. It wasn't like he right. was rebellious. And uh, his mother kept listening to the things being said and sort of filed them away because she was seeing the, the, the destiny of all mankind unfold mm. in this man. Just an amazing, an amazing event. How about the next step in Jesus' life, his baptism, in John 1, 29 through 31? The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So, now it says the next day. This isn't the next day. This is when Jesus turns 30. Right. So this is, uh, this is 18 years later. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You see the birth of Jesus, the events a few days after he's born. Right. Then the scriptures are essentially quiet till he's 12. Right. And then... They're quiet again. They're quiet again until he's a grown man beginning on his ministry. And the way he's introduced... it's inter- At every point, Jesus' introduction is very clear. John the Baptist says, here's just another guy. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how he's introduced. <laughs> so he's not just another guy. No. no. I, here is the reason I came baptizing with water. Right. Because of this man right here. That is the way Jesus is introduced to the world formally as, a, as an adult going about his life's work. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after this, Jesus meditated in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. But then we come to the point where Jesus is calling his followers. And that's found in Matthew 4:18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they led their nets and followed him, left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus went about the, the countryside looking for specific individuals to follow after him. And it was simple the way he asked them. He didn't say, you notice he didn't say, hey, I, have I got a deal for you? You come with me, I'm going to make you rich, I'm going to give you wealth, I'm going to give you lands. I'm, he didn't do any of that. He just simply said, come, follow me. Or he said, come and I'll make you fishers of men. And there was such power in the, sim- in, sim- in the simplicity and the humility of his approach that he drew these men after him. And of course, these 12 became the, the, uh, the 12 apostles. What an amazing example of living your ministry. Just the simplicity and the humility that drew these men. And they literally dropped everything and left. Wow. There's commitment for you. That's for sure. Well, oh, Jonathan, as, as we continue, we're going to take a look at, not necessarily chronologically, but look at different aspects, because now we're at the point where Jesus is, is involved in his ministry. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at different aspects of his ministry, different things that he did, different aspects of his character that came out over that next three and a half years. Let's read Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted at the devil and when he had fasted forty days and forty nights he was afterward uh, hungry and when the tempter came to him he said if thou be the son of god command these stones be made bread but he answered and said it is written men shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of god then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and seeth him on the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him if thou be the son of god cast thyself down for it is written he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, let's think about this for a second. Jesus, first of all, we had that first prophecy in Genesis that talked about Jesus being the seed of the woman, bruising the serpent's head. The serpent was Satan. Right. So Jesus is going to overcome Satan. Mm -hmm. That's what the prophecy says. Right. Jesus would have known that prophecy, obviously. Oh, yes. So here he is, he's in the wilderness. He's fasting his 40 days because he's beginning, this is right after his baptism, Mm -hmm. he's beginning his ministry, and the devil, Satan, comes to tempt him. And Satan Satan tempts him with food. Jesus doesn't answer him. Jesus quotes scripture to answer him. So Satan tempts him again. With scripture. Right. And Jesus (laughs) answers with scripture. Exactly. 
And Satan tempts him again with with convenience, essentially. Mm-hmm. And Jesus answers with Scripture. Mm-hmm. So even though the prophecy says Jesus is going to be the one to take Satan down, Jesus realizes that this is not something, this is not the work of just a, a man. Right. This has to be the work of a God-driven man. And he was versed in the prophecies and versed in the holy works of the Old Testament and used those as his answers. That's what made Jesus so focused. He was not relying on just human thinking. He was relying on the word of God. What a, what a great example, what a great way to start out this ministry of his that was going to last for that next three and a half years. Well, Jesus talked uh, with, with his wisdom uh, from God, and that's found in Luke eighteen eighteen to 25. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus here is expressing a very wise perspective. First of all, this this ruler, this rich young ruler, comes to him and is very, very, very um, sincere in, in his approach. And he's saying, what must I do to inherit this eternal life. And Jesus said, keep the law. And he says, well, I've been doing that. I've, I've been working at it. And, and Jesus knew that he was sincere. And in, an, in another, um, another account of this, in, in one of the other Gospels, it says, and Jesus looked upon him and loved him. Because mm-hmm. Jesus knew that this man really was be, trying to do what he needed to do. But he saw that he lacked one thing. And so he says to him, you know, Jesus isn't afraid of anybody. Right. He says to him, okay, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And it says this, this rich young ruler went away grief-stricken because he was so wealthy. And it, he was not ready to part with earthly riches right. in order to follow after Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus saw that. Jesus knew that that's a necessary part for the church of the firstborn. Remember, we talked about that in the mm-hmm. first hour. Mm-hmm. To be able to, to part themselves from earthly connection right. to follow after spiritual things. So he had this wisdom that was obviously from above. Vic, why don't we hit the, hit the break at this point? We're talking about Jesus and his ministry, the things that he said, the things that he did, the ways that he thought, and preparation for his resurrection. This is Jonathan and Rick with Christian Questions on 980 WSUV. Stay with us. Welcome back to Christian Questions on 980 WSUB with Jonathan and Rick. Our subject this segment, Why Didn't Jesus Save the Crowd? To be a part of our program, call 443-9782-443-WSUB. He did, he did, he did save the crowd. They just didn't know it. And most people don't know it now, but they will. But they will. See, Jesus came in his first appearance 
as to give a sense of what was to come. Jesus came to give us an introduction to what his 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 life and ransom was to bring later on and and we've been walking through some of Jesus life in these last few minutes. One of the things that he showed was what the future was going to bring in terms of healing. Yes, and that's found in Matthew 4:23 and 24. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had palsy, and he healed them. What an incredible picture of the kingdom which is to come. Right. Now, it's interesting. Jesus, the healing that Jesus did didn't fix all their, their woes. No. But, like you said, it was just a picture. It was just a taste, a little tiny taste of the magnitude of the healing that his death and resurrection would bring to all mankind later on. So what a great, great example of that, uh, that, that coming uh, healing. Next, let's take a look at Jesus' teaching. And, and as we do that, we're going to be kind of in the background playing uh, a hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you.
and that's turn your eyes upon Jesus. And what a great context to turn your eyes upon Jesus as, as we, we look at the, the Sermon on the Mountain and those, those Beatitudes and the Blesseds. Uh, such simple, profound words that just give us a sense of the way we ought to pursue living our lives. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, a lot of these things you're not going to see the absolute fulfillment of right now, just like the salvation isn't right now. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, not yet. That's right. But you will. Yes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Oftentimes, peacemakers are looked upon and ridiculed in, in our day. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are things that Jesus spoke to, the, to, to his... Actually, he was teaching his disciples, and the crowds were listening in. And he's using these teachings as, as a way to get to them, to help them understand what their life was supposed to be like. Why don't we look at Mark 11, verses 15 to 18, and let's see Jesus' passion for his ministry. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling, buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And we, we had touched on, on uh, an incident, that incident earlier uh, in, in the program, but what, imagine the, 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 the drive it takes to go and do that, to go and take over the temple like that. Wow. And, yeah. and to, 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 to drive the people out. They, see, they, this was their, their, their modus operandi. This is the way they did things. You know, mm -hmm. we get in here, we get to do this, we get to sell the doves and the animals, and we get to mark up the prices exorbitantly because the poor, simple people... They have nowhere else to go, so here we are. We'll they make don't, tons on them. Right, they yeah. don't make, know any better. We can yep. get a, you know, a big, huge profit here. This is oh, our yeah. best day of business. Yep. Jesus comes in, shuts it all down, and says, you are absolutely wrong. You're robbing these people. It shouldn't be this way. He has that the, the drive, and he was driven because this was his. This was a house of prayer. This was a place that should have been sacred, and he meant to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. Another quick little look at the passion of Jesus, uh, and it, it's almost hidden in this verse. But Luke 22 verses 14 to 15 it says, "When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer.'" Where it says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover, it's talking about I've had a great passion toward eating this Passover with you. And it was it, because he knew that this was the beginning of the end. This was the actual fulfillment of his life. This is what I came here to do, and I want to share this moment with you who have followed me for these last three and a half years. Definite I mean, passion. Absolute passion. How about Jesus comforting? John 14, 1-6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, now just, just before you read any further, let's set the context for this, because this is right near the end of Jesus' life. This is at that last Passover. And Jesus, 
think about this, folks. Now, 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 look. Jesus is about to go through the most amazing suffering that we can ever even even comprehend or imagine. He is not only going to go through suffering, but he has got literally got the weight of the world upon his shoulders. That's what he's carrying. Oh yeah. He needs all of his strength and all of his endurance to go through the final testing ground here. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of getting ready to go do the most difficult thing a human being could ever do, ever, 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 he stops, he looks around him, and he sees his followers lost and wondering and concerned. So he stops. He doesn't think about himself. He doesn't worry about what he's got to do. He instead thinks about those that are with him, and he gives them his time and his effort to encourage and bless them. Now read that scripture. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he goes on, and he goes on for chapters, Jonathan. It's not just, he doesn't say, okay, look, let me give you a quick rundown here before I go do my thing. No. He goes on and he takes precious time and energy to support and comfort those who are following him. And, and to this day, we can look at those words of comfort as we go through our lives and draw that same level of comfort that his, his uh, disciples would have drawn at that point in time. Time does not permit us to go into the, the, the portraits of Jesus praying that we'd like to, but let's just take an overview of Jesus praying. One of the things that a lot of folks think about when they think about Jesus praying is they think about the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, Matthew chapter 6, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so forth. It's a, it's a relatively short prayer. and But, you know, that is not the picture of Jesus praying. Jesus lived prayer. He was constantly in communication uh, with his Father. In John chapter 11, verses 32 to 44, we won't read the entire context in the interest of time, but this is the context of the raising of Lazarus. So we've sort of gone complete circle. We started out the context of our program this morning talking about the raising of Lazarus being mm-hmm. a, a monumental event. And here we are right near the end of the program going back to it. Now, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. And Jesus knew Lazarus was sick, but didn't go to him right away. Jesus obviously had the ability to heal him. That's right. So when he finally gets there, it's late. And it says, the scripture says, Mary, uh, she fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you were only here, you could have sa- I know that. I know for a fact you could have saved him. And he saw her weeping, and he, he was touched by the, uh, by, by the grief. And yes. the scripture says Jesus wept mm-hmm. because of the grief that he saw as a result of the sin and death. And so then he, then he does something amazing. Now, now, Lazarus has been dead for four days. 
So now he's started to decompose here. Right. I mean, this, is, this isn't a good situation physically. Jesus boldly goes to this tomb. He says, take away the stone. And then he does something. He lifted up his eyes. This is in verse uh, 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you hear me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So what this is saying, this is doing two things. First of all, Jesus is outwardly acknowledging his life of prayer Mm -hmm. by saying, I'm always talking to you, and I don't have to say it out loud because I know you always hear me. Right. I'm speaking it out loud so everybody here knows that what I'm about to do comes from you. Yes. And then he boldly proclaims, Lazarus, come forth. There's a portrait of Jesus praying. When I think of the Lord's Prayer, I think of John the 17th chapter. And, and folks, we don't have time to get into that chapter this morning, but I'll tell you what, what you ought to do is right after we get off the air here, you ought to turn to that chapter and read through it because that's the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus is praying for his followers. This is just before he is about to be tried throughout the night, before he's tortured, before he's hung on the cross, and before he dies. And he spends his time with God praying for those who would follow him. This is why Jesus didn't save the crowd then, because his job was far bigger than that little teeny tiny crowd. The throngs of people we talked about before, they, his job was not only to save them from the moments of oppression that they felt, but his job was to save all of the world from the oppression of sin and death. And in our program this morning, what we attempted to do was simply look at and honor some of the life of Jesus and some of what he had behind his dedication to doing the will of God. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us this morning. Make sure you're with us again next week on the Resurrection Sunday when we spend more time honoring Jesus and what he meant to everyone. And that includes you. For Jonathan and Rick, this is Christian Questions. We'll be back next week, but until then, think about it.